Hey guys, so there's two innovations that made me want to podcast today, um, and or rather maybe two kind of epiphanies I've had. The first one I want to start you off with is uh, the uh, and save the best for last. The um, so I learned something interesting. I've been piecing together something. I did a search into why healthcare costs are so expensive in America, and we all know that it's it's there's a lot of bureaucracy that doesn't need to be there because you know I, I I heard it put this way this was actually by a liberal friend he said we don't have a private system in America we have a public one masquerading as a private one and to give you some example of that I think it's Medicare and Medicaid pay one-third of all medical bills um, it's obviously heavily regulated there's all sorts of uh, hospitals that have not-for-profit status and are quasi-governmental because they're offshoots of public universities, which are governmental institutions. Um, there's and, and, and there's all sorts of reasons why healthcare is is sort of a a, a public. At the, if nothing else, it's it's mixed. It's not a pure private market. And I can get into some of that. Um, and another way, another thing that a lot of conservatives can probably tell you is: so the way we pay for healthcare in America through insurance. Uh, that used to be paid for by the person. And so there used to be a lot more decision-making going on by the purchaser, and that means more competition. Right now, the way it happens is your employer picks your health care. So that, that means the person choosing the health care is not the person that receives it. Um, and so that, that means that the, um, the criteria on the purchasing decision is not... Um, always in sync with what the consumer actually wants. So that limits competition or it makes it inefficient. Um, but the other thing, the reason that happened is because um, it had to do with wage controls that happened during the Great Depression under FDR. He mandated um, that certain people could not be paid more uh, than others in certain professions. And so uh, what employers did to stand out was they began to throw in health insurance. And then, so today, I think uh, most people are insured under something called HMOs, where you have employers becoming parts of groups of employers. So there's even less decision making going on. They're buying as a group. Um, so anyway, that that does lend it to inefficiency. And and I'm sure there's other inefficiencies that that I can't even cover here. Um, but a big one that I found that you may not know about is that when I have looked it up, and I have a lot of um, uh, I have a lot of evidence from a variety of sources on this. The re main reason that um, healthcare costs so much in America is doctors' costs. Uh, doctors in America are paid a lot more, and their the quality is not necessarily better. Um, at least the data that I can find, and that would be fine that they're paid more. I, I would have no problem with the. My problem is not with the amount they're paid. My problem is the amount they're paid, the reason they're paid more is because doctors in America have artificially uh, limited the supply of doctors in this country. You may have heard about rural doctor shortages are at all times highs. Um, and uh, part of this is because, I guess that's a little, it could be tangential, but the point is um, there were no new medical skills schools built in America for about 100 years. Meanwhile, they're turning down 80% of people who, who, who try to get in. 
The reason why there were no medical schools built is because the doctors' union, the AMA, American Medical Association, successfully lobbied Congress to not build any new schools. And, um, you know, uh, I have not seen a case constructed that there was a good reason to limit medical schools. So, um, meanwhile, there are plenty of reasons to expand them because we don't have enough doctors in this country. And, it, and apparently they are starting to break ground on new schools, but it took 90 years. So that apparently is the real reason why uh, doctors are paid so much in this country. It's because there's artificial scarcity uh, to where they're only accepting like 10% of applicants or something ridiculous. And I found one stat. So people that are trained at international medical schools, you know, I looked that up because a lot of doctors here do that. They get trained in the Bahamas, etc. I found out that um, doctors from these international schools do not perform worse than the people from the uh, more rigorous or more exclusive American schools, according to a nonpartisan group. And I have all of these links um, if anyone would like to see them. But um, so, so I think we have a problem with the supply of doctors in this country. The other thing that doctors do, and I'm going to get to, to the, develop, the positive development in a second, but the other thing that doctors do is doctors in America are um, vehemently against nurse practitioners providing more medical services, despite the fact that in uh, many ways or some ways, nurse practitioners have the same uh, training as doctors or the same coursework, uh, if nothing else. And so for the idea is that for routine tasks, we could use nurse practitioners for more of these things, and that would lower costs, um, and doctors are against that. But um, the, the, the positive side of this is, it occurred to me, um, I previously was kind of unimpressed with a lot of uh, healthcare startups I've been hearing about, but now I am much more enthusiastic, and here's why. A lot of them are creating diagnostic machines where you answer a variety of questions and the AI or really an algorithm tells you what your condition is. Well, that's really all a doctor does much of the time is ask you questions, maybe take some simple visual cues, which machines can be taught to screen for and some already know how to. And some of these machine, some of these startups are already more accurate than doctors. So my point is at the point that AI and software can replace these doctors, we should see we we if 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 uh, you know what plays out in other technology markets happens here, we should see massive disruption and massive uh, massive cost reductions in healthcare. So that is what I think. And and feel free to Google about these AI healthcare startups. Um, there's all sorts of them. I think Apple's investing in one. Um, but we we should see a reduction in cost. Um, and so that's something that made me excited. Another development, and this may be a shorter podcast this time, another development I got excited about was uh, a friend and I, well, um, I recently read that DARPA is working on uh, brain uh, interfaces or brain, really, brain prosthetics. I'm not sure if they're implants, but I do know that they interface with your brain. Um, that what they do is they use electricity to keep a soldier's mind in a good uh, place, a positive place. They can probably manipulate it to be a variety of emotional states. But the idea is uh, a clear-headed soldier, one that's not feeling fear, one that's feeling um, 
you know, assertive emotions would be a better soldier on the battlefield. But as you know, a lot of the things that DARPA works on become innovations that we use in the public sector. Um, sorry, in the private sector, in, in uh, the rest of public life. And uh, so you can imagine that a machine like this, oh, and examples would be the internet, examples would be things like uh, the uh, MP3 codec that all sorts of digital music and video, well, they use MP MP4 for video. But all of those came out of DARPA, and there's lots of other innovations um, that came from the Defense Department. Uh, but that's, by the way, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects, I think, administration. So that's what DARPA is. It's the U.S. Defense Department's, like, um, Skunk Works Division, meaning Research Division. And they, they produce a lot of cool things. They cre created ARPANET, which became the, the uh, series of tubes, so to speak, or the, the, the network that provided the uh, backbone of the Internet and still does. Um, so... Uh, but you can imagine, let's say that that device, first of all, there's already some evidence that this can be done non-invasively, at least from my layman perspective. And, um, you know, feel free to do more research on this. I'll probably be doing more research on it. It's something I'm just now learning about. There's something called um, transcranial stimulation. They can do it with magnets and they can do it with electricity. But basically, you can just put electrodes on your head or you can put like uh, um, a there's a medical device that does this a magnet in your head and it causes neurons to fire in a, in a safe you know um, non-painful way I've actually seen someone go under this procedure um, and what it does is by causing um, the way this is being used now is for depression so by causing your pleasure centers to fire it causes them to create new connections to the rest of your brain it turns out um, that sort of the new cutting-edge theory of depression is that uh, people lack certain genes that allow their neurons to repair themselves from stress. So over time, people that lack these genes, um, their body does not repair the normal stress from cortisol that happens to their neurons, and that causes the neurons in their pleasure center to literally die. And they took mice that they knocked out these genes they turned these genes that mice also share off these repair genes um, they turned them off and they showed what happens to these mice neurons and if you think of like neurons in your brain um, they're all connected like a tree they have all these little branches so they show under a slide of normal mouse brains then they show a slide of mice that have had these repair genes turned off their tree, it's like a withered tree in the winter that's about to fall over. It looks like a bunch of twigs. When they start stimulating these mice with electricity, and in humans, they, they've shown that this is 80% um, efficacy in humans for treatment-resistant depression. That's people who've already had problems with depression that other treatments failed. Um, they've shown that the, the connections grow back, so that dead tree becomes a healthy-looking tree again. Um, that's the only way I can describe it, how it looks. So anyway, but this can work in many different ways. Um, it also works for cognition. So um, the people that get this treatment, after they leave the doctor's office, they report driving home better. It makes you sharper. There's doctors using it right now, at, at, um, doing trials as a treatment for Alzheimer's because if you can create new neural connections, then it doesn't matter, or it may matter a lot less, 
that some connections have died or gotten blocked off by the proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's. Um, you know, so you can imagine that this has applications. Uh, there was a startup for a while. Um, I think they were called Think, T-H-Y-N-C, where they had basically digital Adderall. They had um, electrodes you could connect to your head with an app that um, they had two settings. They had one they called like Vibe, which was uh, to get you in the zone and focused. And they had one called Chill. And there was a porter that did um, the Vibe setting. And the Vibe setting, she said, made her much more focused. Um, there was another reporter that did a similar... They've since had to take their product off the market because the FDA wants to regulate it. Um, th- there was also um, a reporter that used actually one of the official DARPA um, headsets of this stuff. And after taking it, she performed much better in a shooting uh, target course. Um, she was like a clutch the first time. The second time she described herself as a killing machine. Now, you know, for those of you against war and things, I'm not... That's not why I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this because what if it makes could make you better at your job? What if it could make um, our doctors better at their job? What if it could make scientists better at their jobs? You can imagine, you know, this isn't just... Maybe this machine doesn't just do focus. Maybe this machine, rather than making you, you know, speeding up your cognition, whatever, what if it just gives you a pleasant effect, a pleasant mood? So, you know, subjects that... And, and, and I'm not saying that I want this legislated and... There is probably a, a, a Brave New World cynical side to this, but what if um, kids having trouble in school, you know, instead of giving them uh, Adderall, they could be given this uh, machine. And here's the other part about this is it doesn't create dependency because it's not chemical. And in fact, after they do this, let's say they do your pleasure centers. After they do this, your pleasure centers are more active. Let's say it's your attention centers. After they do this, they're more interconnected. So your attention centers are kind of, I don't know if it's permanent, but they are significantly and more active and for a significant duration. Um, the research I saw was not aware of any limited duration to the effects of this, the, this type of treatment. And here's, here's another thing. Um, you know, a friend and I posited that um, humanity is going to make something called a dopamine machine. To where um, you can just make anything pleasurable if you needed to. Uh, so, you know, there's something called um, trans. Ah, oh God, transhumanism. Transhumanists believe that it is the primary moral um, imperative of man to reduce suffering. So you can imagine you can give somebody this machine. Let's say they're in a very poor country where they're suffering from an illness. And it doesn't mean that we also shouldn't cure them. But it may mean, you know, maybe you can't feed them or maybe you can't guarantee that they will have everything they need for the rest of their life. And those are still noble goals. But perhaps you can eliminate their suffering in the moment. Perhaps the person undergoing a very painful medical treatment could be given this and you've eliminated their suffering during the treatment. Perhaps a older person um, who is distraught um, or lonely or somebody who is in a home or or is disabled and so cannot pursue um, pleasurable activity or activities they used to enjoy, perhaps they could be given this. And so I think that there's a lot of positive applications. You know me, I I, I like to think of the positive applications. I like to be positive in general. Um, And I'm not advocating anyone use this who doesn't. 
um, doesn't want it, but uh, I think it could be very powerful. Imagine, you know, this was the best one I thought of. Imagine you just decided, you know, a lot of us don't study certain things because we know they're difficult and we know they're going to be hard and involve sacrifice. What if you could make computer programming as pleasurable as watching cartoons or whatever it is you you enjoy? What if you could make learning medicine as pleasurable or learning biology or chemistry? You know, we might suddenly have tons more doctors, tons more scientists, tons more mathematicians. And when you have some of those, not to say that other professions aren't valuable, but who knows if that eliminates uh, any skills gap, any, um, I talked about doctor um, shortages. What if this eliminates it, you know? How much faster, not only that, how much faster could people learn things if they didn't have to worry about, you know, I had a friend told me that, and he's an excellent lawyer, but he told me that in law school, what he would have to do is, he would have to take a break every half hour. What if he didn't have to do that? And I'm not advocating he never take breaks, you know, do what's healthy, but what if those goof off hours, he didn't have to goof off anymore. What if he could complete his tasks um, more timely manner? And then have more time to do the things he, 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 he really enjoys. Anyway, I think that I think that for those of us who try to keep an optimistic outlook, that we can think about what the pleasurable, um, uh, not just pleasurable, the uh, virtuous or noble uses of this machine might be. Um, people facing terminal illness, you know, etc. So, and and I'm willing to admit that there may be, there there is a role for. There could be a role for pain in our life. You know, it may depend on your religious beliefs and things like that. But for those who don't share that belief or for those with horrible mental illness or depression or suicide, suicidal urges, you could help them with a machine like this. And again, um, don't have to worry about drug allergies. Don't have to worry about um, uh, dependency. Um, so anyway, and, and, and uh these machines have actually, these types of machines using electrical impulses have actually been on the market since the 90s. There are no contraindications uh, of these of these things yet. Um, if they are used by a professional at professional voltages, um, there is a safe, healthy tolerance level. And uh, so uh, if nothing else, these could have very good, specific, targeted uses for society. And uh, who knows, maybe they'll be available for you to buy just like a phone one day. Anyway, I think it would be cool. Hope you enjoyed the podcast um, and I'll talk to you guys later.